You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, winner of the Share Care Emmy Award for Social Storytelling and the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we're going to be talking about some real key words here. If you've ever studied for the Performance Enhancement Specialist course, then you may be familiar with these terms. Now, it's in the CPT as well, but let's be honest, the Performance Enhancement course that we have, a lot of it's predicated on these two topics, and and I think it's important to, to address. It's important, in fact, for me to address to somebody that has a question. So the question is, hi, Dr. Ritchie, happy birthday again. So this was a few weeks back. Currently studying for my PES exam. I was wondering, in regards to movement and exercise, how does the stretch shortening cycle differ from the force velocity curve? So those are the two things we're going to be talking about today, the stretch shortening cycle and the force velocity curve. Now, he goes on to say, I have in my notes that the stretch shortening cycle enhances neuromuscular efficiency. Certainly it can. So if that is true, does it improve an athlete's muscle contraction? Certainly it can, thus improving the force velocity curve. Certainly, again, that is a possibility. Always good to hear from you, friend. That is from a friend of the podcast, Mark Reese. So Mark, thank you so much for reaching out. It's always good to hear from you. If you guys have questions, you want to ask me. And and I know I talk about a variety of topics on this show. I mean, we talk about business. We talk about branding. We talk about outreach. We talk about client experience. And we talk about some really detailed stuff about exercise science. And this is one of those details that we're going to have a discussion about today. So Mark, thanks for bringing up that question. Y'all can do the same thing. I'll talk about it at the end of the podcast and how you can reach out to me. So with that being said, let's hit kind of these major topics that we're going to be looking at. One is the stretch shortening cycle. And um, what happens in the, let's just break it down. Stretch shortening cycle is kind of, it depends on the stretch reflex. And even though they're sort of the same, there are some little differences that we're going to talk about. Now, the stretch shortening cycle, I want you to think about this. A muscle gets stretched. Um, like, let's say I'm going to do, um, I'm going to jump for a basketball, because that's a that's a good example of a lot of people that live their lives high in the air, right? So I want to jump up and get a basketball. Now, if if I jump up, I can't just squat down and count for three Mississippi and then jump up and expect to get higher than if I just drop down real fast and real fast explode back up. And you can try that if you want. You'll be sorely, sorely uh, disappointed when you realize that when you do squat jumps and you hold it for three to five seconds and then jump, that you're not going to get as high. I think we all know that. For instance, um, we like to run and jump. That builds up acceleration. It builds up some energy. So here's what happens. Stretch shortening cycle. I've got the stretch that takes place. Now, when that stretch takes place, there is a stretch reflex that occurs. And the stretch reflex is a neurological signal from the brain to the muscle spindles, um, really the muscle spindles right there, say, I don't like how fast the stretch is. So it's two things. It's the rate of stretch and it's the amount of stretch. So if I stretch quickly, 
and I don't stretch that far. So if I just bend my knees a little bit, it won't be enough. Now, if I bend my knees too much quickly, then based on the length tension relationship, I have now stretched too far in order to be able to contract with optimal efficiency. So I also won't get up as high. For instance, if I squat down to get that rebound so deep that my butt touches the ground and then I jump back up, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get up as high. So, but that stretch reflex, a real quick stretch, there's a neurological response that the muscle contracts. Now, when the muscle contracts from the stretch, we will also consciously contract our muscles and jump higher than we would if we just slowly squatted down and then tried to jump as high as we could. So the stretch shortening cycle is this cycle where we've got, you remember this from um, probably high school, uh, maybe it's a, a health class or a physics class, you talk about potential energy and then there's kinetic energy, maybe a chemistry class. I'm trying to figure out where I first heard this potential energy and kinetic energy. Well, what happens is that when you stretch, you create a potential energy. So that real quick drop into the squat before you jump, there's potential energy or what we refer to sometimes as stored energy. Now, what we know, even in our other classes, we can have potential energy, but if we don't use the potential energy, that energy will dissipate as heat. So it, it goes away. But what we do here is we do a real quick stretch and then immediately actively contract along with the stretch shortening cycle or that stretch reflex so we can jump higher and we're able to produce additional kinetic energy. We, we take the potential something that's possible, something that's stored, and then we turn it into kinetic energy. We turn it into movement. And so we're going to employ these things when we do our squat jump or things like that. Um, and so the you think about the stretch shortening cycle that NASM also refers to as the integrated performance paradigm. And even though it that statement doesn't say anything, when you understand what the integrated performance paradigm is, then it makes sense. So it is the stretch shortening cycle. But when you look at it, we go from the eccentric phase, the lowering down phase, and then there's the uh, amortization phase. And that phase is the phase which is the transition from eccentric into concentric movement. So eccentric is the deceleration. Concentric is acceleration. Well, the amortization phase is the phase in between those two. And, and then what's in the middle of that kind of circle where we go eccentric to concentric, you go eccentric to concentric, in the middle of that, uh, based on the integrated performance paradigm, is something called neuromuscular efficiency and core stabilization or core stability. And you think about neuromuscular efficiency as the neuromuscular system's ability to produce, reduce, and dynamically stabilize in multiple planes at various speeds in a safe and coordinated fashion. So what that's saying is, can you control the movement? So you lack neuromuscular efficiency if your knees cave in when you do that. You lack neuromuscular efficiency and core stability if your hips shift to the side. And I've done it before where 
where I've done squat jumps. And at one point, like just something didn't stabilize right in my spine. And I felt a little wiggle. I felt a, a little shake. And I was like, well, clearly I'm unable to produce good force in my concentric phase, in my jump, if I don't stabilize eccentrically, if I don't stabilize the entirety of that movement. So we want to be able to take and decelerate movement and then limit that amateurization phase absolutely as much as possible, the transition from eccentric to concentric. Now, here's a, a story about that where I used to have, um, in one of the gyms, there was, it was like a big rack where four squat racks were all kind of in one big unit. And in between them were monkey bars. So two on one side, two on the other, the squat racks. And, and then there were, there were monkey bars all across, but it was really high. And I say really high. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively uh, not tall. So for me to jump up and be able to grab the bar at the top, and it was about nine, nine feet and two inches, nine feet and an inch. And so I had jumped up and I tried to grab the bar and, and I missed it. And then I jumped up again, frustrated because I've grabbed it before and I missed it again. So just both fingertips touched. And a guy that was there with me, and he was he was very aware of the stretch shortening cycle, the integrated performance paradigm. He looks at me and he goes, you're spending too much time at the bottom. It's like you squat down and you pause, <coughs> excuse me, for a fraction of a second before you jump up. He goes, you have to get rid of that. You limit that amortization phase and jump. As soon as you lower, get back up. And I did, and I grabbed the bar with room to spare. And I was like, oh, of course. Like, these are things that I know, but so this is why coaching is helpful. Coaching's helpful because people have an eye and they can see some of the things that you are doing or that you're not doing and be able to provide that feedback. So that, for me, was, was very helpful. But that's a lot of information. And well, it's not that much information about the stretch shortening cycle. But the question then, how does that relate to the force velocity curve? And here's really the interesting thing about the force velocity curve is it simply states that the heavier the weight, the slower the movement, and the lighter the weight, the faster the movement. So the force and velocity are inversely related. The amount of force, and you have increased force or weight or resistance against you, then you have decreased velocity. And if you have increased velocity, then certainly the force is decreased as well because you wouldn't be able to move heavy things that fast. That's why and we get this question from time to time where we talk about taking um, medicine balls. Let's use that as, a, as an example. <clears throat> a medicine ball, and I remember when I was managing a gym one time years ago, and they said, um, they said, Rick, can we get a 30 pound medicine ball? And I said, for what? And they said, it's just the medicine balls aren't that heavy. And I went, they're not that heavy for what? What are you doing with the medicine balls? And they were doing things like, you know, handing, let's, let's sit back to back. And then I'm gonna hand it to you. And then you reach around and you hand it to me. And then I hand it back to you. And that's cool. Like you can do that, but that's not what medicine balls are for. You can use medicine balls for things like that. But the purpose of a medicine ball is 
the practice of power production, of force production. How fast can I move it? And I don't know very many people that can move a medicine ball that's 30 pounds that fast. In fact, we look at medicine ball weight being somewhere that the, the weight that you throw is going to be somewhere between 10 and 20% of your one rep max. So if, if you have a, a 300 pound uh, bench press, then a 30 pound medicine ball makes sense. You could, you could do a 10% uh, and you would be able to move that explosively most likely. Most people wouldn't also make sure that wherever you're throwing it is a safe place to throw in your gym. Because in the same gym that I used to manage, there was a person that was working with a client that had her throwing one of the hard medicine balls into the wall. But it was not a support wall. It was just drywall. And the ball landed, landed in the wall, stuck in the wall. And then she, the trainer and the client, they both looked around like something wrong happened and something wrong did happen. So it, you know, like it got patched up and it was fixed and it was fine, but don't do that. Throw it into a wall that is a supporting wall or what we refer to as a party wall. Party wall is a, a wall that supports you to be able to throw some stuff into it. Uh, so then if we're moving something quickly, so think about like box jumps, uh, mm, rephrase, box jump down. So if I'm going to jump down from a box and then immediately explode back up, I actually am using gravity to increase the amount of force upon impact to accelerate a stretch shortening cycle in order for me to be able to produce force. Now, uh, I can jump from a high enough height where I can't overcome it and then I can't jump as high. So there is this kind of portion where the lines, the 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 curved lines of force and velocity that are inversely related where they intersect. And that's probably a good place where you could produce a lot of excellent force and speed. But then I get the follow-up question a lot of times, well, what about power lifters? And power lifters just left, lift heavy stuff. So it's not like they're moving very fast. Well, usually one rep maxes don't move very fast, but a power lifter, I will say, if you're doing like a, a clean or a snatch, the bar isn't necessarily moving the fastest. I, I mean, they honestly, they move them pretty fast. They have to be able to move them fast enough for them to get under the bar. So the speed that they really produce is not as much the lifting, but how fast they're able to get underneath the bar. And so that's the, that's the case for a lot of power lifting or Olympic lifting. And then power lifting, you'll also see things like bench press on a power lift. Well, they still, even though the concentric phase of the lift isn't fast, the eccentric phase of the lift is usually very fast in order to be able to use the stretch reflex that fits into the stretch shortening cycle that allows them to use the force velocity curve, which is just a statement that says the heavier the weight, the, the harder it is to move fast. Uh, and then the lighter the weight, the easier it is to move quickly. And that is, I think, a universal truth. But with that being said, to be able to graph it and plot it and then say, okay, well, what does that mean for my squat jumps? What does that mean for my depth jumps? What does that mean for my long jumps? What does that mean 
for my med ball catch and throws, what does that turn into when it looks like you're about to get ready for performance? And that is something that we can chart and then we can graph and we can say, hey, the, the real explosive movements that you put where we still have you moving incredibly fast with the heaviest amount of weight you can still move incredibly fast is probably your sweet spot. And then you can say, all right, well, that's because you bench 150 pounds and we take 10% of that. And so that 15 pound medicine ball is likely somewhere around your sweet spot. And that would be the explosive power performance that we look at when it comes to the, the performance enhancement course and workshop around athletic performance. All right. Anyway, I hope that helped out. Like, subscribe, share with your fitness friends and family. And if you got a question for me, like Mark had for me discussing this topic, you can reach out to me. Hit me up on Instagram at dr.rickrichie or on threads. I'm on there as well. Or you can email me, rick.richie at nasm.org. Y'all keep inspiring people to fitness. Thanks for listening. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.